Okay. Hey, how is everybody this morning? Hey, uh, thank you for being flexible just around, you know, changing rooms. I mean, it's one of those kinds of things where that room usually is freezing. And so I don't know if you've ever been on that side of three, but it's normally really cold, which is, you know, you're almost not so uncomfortable, but you definitely don't go to sleep. And so the good thing is, is moving over here, at least we'll be in good shape in terms of weather. But my name is John Cox and I am on staff here. Um, I'm actually the person that's responsible for making everything Watermark does better. And so um, about seven years ago, I was working at a hedge fund here in Dallas called HBK Investments. And, um, and my job there, you know, is people familiar with hedge funds? Okay, so, so, so a hedge fund is like a private mutual fund. And, um, and what you realize is that in a hedge fund, um, the, the goal is to make money. And as long as you make money, you can basically do almost everything else wrong. And as long as you're ethical, you're going to grow and be successful as a hedge fund. But what happens is in a hedge fund, the guys who make the money, they're the ones who become partners. And the partners lead the firms. And so as a hedge fund is successful and as it grows, what happens is, is your best investors are all of a sudden now in charge of running a medium-sized business. And what ends up happening is, is, is you know, some of those investors are great leaders and managers. Some of them are terrible. But even the ones who are great at it, that's not their highest and best use. Their highest and best use is to focus on investing. And so uh, H- I, I went to work at HBK, and my job was to work on the side of the business that didn't really matter so that the guys who were great investors could focus on investing. And so I was in charge of basically building the firm. You know, so training and developing leaders, making sure we had the right people in the right spots, doing a bunch of competitive intelligence, and generally helping our best investors stay focused on investing. And so when I came across to Watermark, Watermark essentially hired me to say, look, how can you help our best people get into the right spots and then make everything we do better? So that's my basic job description here at Watermark. And today uh, we're going to talk about leadership. And essentially what I want to do is this, uh, let me use this whiteboard over here, but um, the goal is two things. One, it's to help you become a better leader. So when you walk out of here today at 1130 or 12, we want you to have four or five ideas that you can apply Monday in your leadership that will make you a better leader. And then the second one is, is we want to help you to help other leaders get better. Okay, because as you climb in an organization or you climb anywhere, all of a sudden you're now not just leading yourself, you're in charge of developing other leaders. And so to kind of set that context, what I wanted to do is just talk a little bit about Watermark. Watermark has 700 community groups. And so if you were to draw a line here and, you, and you'd put down here on this end would be our best group. So this is our best group down here. Down here is our worst group. Okay. And now we force rank our 700 leaders and put them on this line. Okay. Now, if I step back and I said, okay, let's look at different parts of the segment. Let's take our best leaders, our, let's say our, our best 20% of our leaders. So in 700 groups, that's our 140 best people. What is the common denominator for them? I mean, what makes them great at what they do? And say, so now that's the kind of stuff I lie awake at night thinking about. Because what I'm trying to figure out is, is if I can figure out what they do really well, then we can help everybody to do that. And so if you were to boil it down, you would say that our best leaders, right, 
they are naturally gifted at this. And so they lead well, they encourage, they shepherd, right? And they don't, it's instinctive. Like sometimes if they have to explain it, they're not very good at it. It's almost like in baseball, you know, there's guys who can hit curveballs, but the guys who hit curveballs aren't always the best guys to explain to others how to hit them. Because they, they're like, look, you just see it's curving and you hit it. Um, and so, uh, you know, sometimes the people that are the best at it are the worst teachers. Okay? But what you would find is if you looked at our best groups is the leaders in those groups do three things. Okay? Number one, they initiate. So what, what I mean by that is they take responsibility for the relationship. And so it doesn't matter if, you know, what the situation is, is in their minds, they're not just waiting every two weeks until the group meets. They're thinking about, okay, how do I initiate relationally with the people in my group consistently? So it may be sending them texts. It may be, you know, writing them emails. It may be picking up the phone and calling them, but they're naturally reaching out to people. Does that make sense? And I think what happens is, is, you know, so many people who are not natural, natural leaders, they wait for other people to reach out to them. And so, and this happens a lot in work, you know, where if you're a boss, you know, you can get into a situation where you're so busy that you're not initiating with the people underneath you. And what I would tell you is, is the best leaders, they take responsibility for the relationship. And we're going to talk about that all morning long, how that shows up in different elements. Okay. The second thing that, that these best leaders do is they're natural encouragers. And so they love people well. And so they are looking for what is good in people and they are telling them about it. And so what ends up happening is, is everyone in that group wants to be around them because we all want to be encouraged. And what's so interesting to me is, is if you're a part of a, a highly performing organization, what tends to happen in those organizations is you're really good at what you do and you're expected to be really good. And so, you know, when you perform great, everyone just says, well, that, that's great. That's why we pay you the big bucks. And what happens a lot of times in those organizations is they don't do well at celebrating people. And what's interesting is, is when people quit jobs, oftentimes they're not quitting the organization, they're quitting the boss. Okay? Because they don't feel encouraged. And so that's the second thing that, that these people do, is they, they naturally encourage. And then the third thing they do is they are catalysts. And here's what I mean by that. In, in our community groups, the purpose of our groups is spiritual growth. We want people to become more like Jesus. And so our best leaders are the ones that are constantly challenging, encouraging, loving you know, people to take steps forward. And the, the primary way they do that is by modeling it themselves. And so, um, you know, let me give you an an example is, is uh, there are a lot of guys in my life, right? Who, um, would call themselves Christians and they are in their Christian life. Like if you think about a track analogy, they are running the equivalent of 15 minute miles. Okay. Now I don't know who who are runners in this room, but you know, world-class is under four minutes. Okay. You could almost walk a 15 minute mile. 
Okay? And there are guys out there in their Christian lives that are, that are maybe doing, you know, 13-minute miles, and they are busy patting themselves on the back about how great they are. Right? Like they're convinced in their minds that they're almost Olympic caliber. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Okay. The best way that I know to, um, to, to challenge people like that is put them on a track with someone that's running a six-minute mile. And all of a sudden, they're getting lapped. Okay? And then reality crashes in on them. And they're like, oh my goodness. You know, I, I thought I was almost world class and, and I'm just getting lapped. And when you're around someone like that, that either causes you to raise your game or you just say, you know what? I'm not a track athlete. I'm getting off the track. D- does that make sense? And so the people in this group, the, the first way they're a catalyst is they just set a quick pace. And so everyone sees them, right? And that causes them to go, you know what? I need to raise the level of my game. The next thing that they do just in terms of catalysts is they're willing to hold mirrors up to people. And so one of the things that we'll talk about today, that if you don't get anything else out of this morning, that I think is is one of the most helpful leadership things, is, is how you coach and develop and challenge people. And what I would say is, is that if you can lock in on three questions, you, know, you will improve your ability probably 100%. And the first question is, is, what is the person doing that they need to keep doing? Okay? What is the one or two or three things that they do that makes them special, where they add most of their value? And so it's an ability to say, you know what? You do this really, really well. And keep doing that. Okay, so that's the first question. The second question is, is, what do they do? What's the one thing that they do that they need to stop doing? And, uh, and let me give you an example of that. There, um, there's a guy who I used to work with, who, um, who I no longer work with. Um, but he was about the most gifted guy that I know at what he did. But uh, as he got, took on more and more leadership, there was one thing that he was doing that was killing him in terms of his leadership. And that is, is he was a stress amplifier. Okay? So when something went wrong, he lost his marbles. Okay? And he would start blaming people, you know, and he would start screaming. And, um, and so it, that was negatively impacting everyone that worked for him. And so what I needed to do was come alongside of him and say, hey, you know what? You have got to stop that because it's killing you. And if you want to lead well, the more stressful it gets, the more calm you have to be because everyone is looking at you. And so, um, you know, that's, that's come alongside of him and saying, okay, this is a behavior you've got to change. And then the third question is, you know, so what do you need to do that they keep doing? What are, what, is they, what are they doing that they need to stop doing? And the last question is, is, what are they not doing? What's the one thing they're not doing that if they started doing would make the biggest impact on their performance? Okay? So, um, it's an ability to ask those three questions. Now, uh, let me say, by the way, on this, on this diagram here, we're going to talk about three groups. There's, there's the really gifted leaders... Okay, down here, we're going to talk about the people that are in our community groups that are just disasters. Okay, and then we're going to talk about the big middle. 
Okay? And what I would tell you is probably 95% of the people here in this room are down here. And some of the things that we're going to say today, you're going to go like, okay, that's just, you know, Captain Obvious. Okay? What I would tell you is there is a whole big middle here that wants to be good leaders, but they're not going to figure it out on their own. Okay? And if you're going to be a great leader, you not only need to do this stuff, you need to teach other people how to do this stuff that don't naturally get it. And when it comes to teaching other people, you have got to make it simple. And then you've got to reinforce it. So for example, if I can say to all of my leaders here, okay, keep doing, stop doing, start doing. If I can get them to constantly think about those questions as they are coaching and developing people, they're going to dramatically raise their game as catalysts. Does that make sense? Okay, so this group down here, the things they do great is they initiate, they love people well, and they're catalysts for change. You know, where they're truth tellers and they're speaking, speaking wisdom into people's lives. Okay, now let's look down here at this group. Okay, this group down here, they are disasters. And what you would say about this group here, the leaders in those groups, is that they, they somehow, they always make it all about them. Do you, do you know anybody like that? Okay. And what I would tell you is we are all broken. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. But some people, for whatever reason, are broken at such a level that they sabotage all of the relationships around them. Okay? And so what you need to do is, is with the people that are down here is you've got to figure out a way to help them get healthy. Now, at Watermark, right, what we would do is, is we would say, hey, go to, go to um, Regen you know, and get in touch with, with the reasons you keep sabotaging these relationships and through your relationship with Jesus, get well. Or we would say, hey, in your marriage, you know, go to re-engage, and, and work diligently on that. Get yourself into a position of health that will then affect all your relationships and that'll move you this way. Does that make sense? Okay. So in the business world, what happens to these people? They get fired. Okay. And the truth is, is really, you know, you could draw a line somewhere, right? But in the business world, like let's just say we draw it right here. All of these people get fired as leaders or never get the chance. And what, what I would tell you is, is that while there is a certain amount of giftedness to being a great leader, we can teach a lot of these skills. And in God's kingdom, everyone matters. And everyone is in a position where they influence other people. And so we have got to come alongside of them and help them to grow in their leadership skills and abilities. Okay? And if we can do that, people will love us. You know, there is a, there's a proverb, Proverbs 28, 23, which says, he, he who rebukes a man will in the end gain more favor than he who has a flattering tongue. And so, you know, there are people who just say, you know what, I, I see the rough spots on them, but I'm not going to sharpen them. I'm just going to, you know, it's just not worth it. And what that proverb would say is, is the one who speaks the truth is the person that's going to be loved and admired and respected. Okay, so this is the framework that we're going to talk about today. And essentially, we're going to say, look, there's, there's people who are great at this. You know, wh- what is it that they're doing? There's people down here that we need to get healthy. And then there's the middle 70%. 
And with the middle 70%, we have got to be able to teach them what the steps are to get better. And so this whole class today is not just about how to get here for you. It's how you help this big group here to get better. Okay, so if you're, if you're at a point where you go, okay, well, that's obvious. You know, these frameworks, they're not perfect. And if you've got better frameworks, use those. But if you don't, these are some pretty good ones. Like if you can just teach the people around you to help other people go keep doing, stop doing, start doing, that will dramatically help. So that's where we want to go. And then the other thing I want to say is, is that we are going to combine a lot of biblical wisdom and just a lot of organizational truth together today. And so what we would say is all truth is God's truth. Okay, so if, if it's true, it, it comes from God. Some of this is going to flow out of Scripture. The place where you're going to see a lot of this show up is 1 Timothy 4. Okay, so the book of Timothy was, uh, if, you, if you know about Timothy, Timothy was a young follower of Paul. And um, they think he was in his mid-30s when there were problems in the church in Ephesus. Things were not going well. It was a turnaround situation. And so Paul sent one of his most trusted young lieutenants to go get things in shape in in Ephesus. And then he turned around and he wrote him the letter of 1 Timothy, telling him, here's here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to lead. Here's how you should turn this thing around. And so if you look at 1 Timothy, and uh, you can go back over this later, but in 1 Timothy, he just gives us seven or eight ideas about how you lead well that are going to show up in, in our talks today. And so um, if you uh, here, let me just jump to chapter 4. Um, starting here, he just talks about, hey, guess what? The first thing is, is you're going to be surrounded by a whole bunch of people that are teaching false things. And so the first thing he says is, you got to speak the truth to people. And so if you look at verse 6, he's... Uh, Paul just says to Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. So speak the truth, you know, is kind of number one. The second thing he says is, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Okay, the second thing, you know, Paul says leaders is train yourself to be godly, which basically means, you know, know the Bible, build the Bible into your life and, you know, be very diligent about trying to grow. And again, this is, you know, you'll see where he, where this comes up where he says, okay, because as you're training self to be, yourself to be godly, you're going to impact others. And then he says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this, we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So the third principle is, is people that he says, Timothy, have an eternal perspective. God has a plan and he's in control and you can trust him. And so if you're faithful, God is going to be responsible for, for carrying you through. Then in verse 11, command and teach these things. Don't want to let anyone look down on you because you are young, right? Remember, he's in his 30s. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Okay, so model the way. 
Then if, if we come down, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the, the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. And then he says, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So you're going to hear us talk about when you're developing yourself as a leader, build on your strengths, right? Don't neglect your gifts. And then finally, he just says, you know, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hairs. Right? So he says, hey, be diligent. Go all in. Now, we're going to see those principles just show up again and again today as we talk about this stuff. But we'll go kind of back and forth between, okay, here are some organizational principles and, and then here are some things that flow out of the Bible. And all truth is God's truth. Any questions about that? Okay, so this is kind of where we're going. Now, Greg, who's up here with me, Greg has the same job I do, but he does it with our young adult ministry. And so Greg's job with the young adults is he's charged with making everyone better. And if you think about this, like if we were to think about Watermark, like a college football team, okay, if you look at a great college football coach, what is it that great college football coaches do? Okay, does anybody want to? They recruit. Okay, I heard someone say they recruit. Okay, the first thing they do is, is they can build relationships with great athletes. Okay, and so they, they get good players. Okay, does, what's the second thing they do? They encourage? Okay, the, they definitely do that. What I would say that's a part of that is they know where to put the people on the field. Okay, because in high school, all of the best players are quarterbacks and safeties and running backs and, you know, wide receivers. And a great college football coach can look at a kid and watch him play and say, this is what he's really good at. He is a lineman or a tight end, you know, or an outside linebacker. The best college football coaches know right away where to put the guy on the field. And then the third thing they do really well is is college football coaches have 20 hours a week with players. And so they can get the most in terms of developing them in those 20 hours. So so they're able to recruit well, they know where to put people, and then they can develop them. And so that's what we'll talk about here as we're going through it. Okay, so is there, everybody with me now? What we'll do is, is, if you have questions about any of this stuff, we're a small enough group, just scream out, okay? And so, um, and also, by the way, we'll break at probably 10.30, 10.45, but if you need a break before then, you're not gonna hurt our feelings, okay? Just get up, you, look, if you don't even like this, go somewhere else, okay? <laughs> All right? So, again, you're not gonna hurt our feelings, Okay, so um, I've sat through plenty of classes where I'm like, oh, it's killing me. I'm stuck. Um, okay, so one other framework to get us started. And by the way, we've got all of our slides with, with, you know, with, with us today. And so we may or may not follow them. Greg will probably do a much better job than me at following his slides. Okay, but we've got this stuff so you can take it home. Okay, so now here's the next thing I want to tell you about leadership is that most people, when they think about leadership, they think about leading the people under them that work for them. Okay? And what I would tell you is leadership is a four-way proposition. And so if this is you, okay, okay, then you've got your boss on top of you. 
you've got the people that work for you. Let's just call them your direct reports. So I'm just going to put reports here. Okay. And then you've got all of these people that you work with, but they don't necessarily work for you, right? They're peers. Okay. And in the church, there's a ton of these people, right? These are, these are your volunteers. And so these are people you need to influence to help follow you, but you don't have any formal mechanisms to ensure that they do that, right? Like now, if someone works for you, you've got some levers to make sure they do what you tell them to do. Okay, so we've got, you know, the first person you got to lead is yourself. Second, you got to lead up. Third, you got to lead down. And then the fourth is you've got to lead laterally. Okay, now let me ask you a question. Okay, and so this is, as we talk about this, I want you to get in your mind of those four directions. I want you to think about who is the hardest person in your life that you need to lead. Okay. So think about, think about that, and you can even write their name down. You might have a, a perfect picture of them, and you say, I've got this person, you know, and, and they don't listen to anything I say, and, um, or they don't do what I want them to do. Okay, you, you got that person in your mind? Okay, who, okay, so I won't, I won't ask you to shout out names, right? For some of you, it might be your spouse, okay? Um, what I would say Okay, is I think the most the hardest person for me to lead is me. Okay, because there is a gap for me between who I want to be and what I do. And so we're going to spend some time today talking about self-leadership. And so that's going to be probably the first third of what we're going to talk about. Then the second thing we're going to talk about is, is how do you lead others one-on-one? And not just down, but how do, how do you lead your boss, right? How do you lead people that work for you? And then how do you lead people who are just in the same organization you're in, but there's no direct lines of authority? And so we'll talk about that. So we'll just call this one-on-one. And then where we want to end up towards the end of today is we'll talk about, okay, now you're in charge of an organization. And it's Monday morning. What do you do? And so this is going to be kind of one to many. And so depending on where you are in your life, you might say, you know what? I'm in a position where this is the most important one for me today. And others of us might say, no, 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 this is the, you know, this is, I've got a handle on this. This is where I'm really focusing. And still others, you know, you may say, uh, hey, I got 500 people that work for me. Okay. And so this then becomes a, how am I effective in a one-to-many? And also, how do I teach others to be effective in a one-to-many? Okay. So that's where we're heading. All right. And then what Greg and I are going to do is we're just going to trade the pen back and forth. Okay, and so, uh, you know, what we'll do is we'll just, so I'll start and then I'll hand it off to him and then he'll hand it back to me and, and we'll go from there. Does that sound, sound good? Okay, so let's start off with self-leadership. And what I want to do is I want to address two things. First, who are you? And second, how are you doing? And so um, this first question is I find the hardest people to work with are the people that are deceived about who they are. 
Okay? The ones who think they're really good at something and they're not. Okay? Or correspondingly, they think they're terrible at something and so they won't try. And, um, and so the best thing that we can do is we can say, uh, okay, who are we? What are we good at? And can, uh, let me use myself as a personal example. Um, my background was, grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. My dad was a Navy doctor. Um, and then I went to Stanford, got out of Stanford, ended up getting a master's in, in theology because I didn't know my Bible. And uh, went to a church in Chicago. And then I was, I was going to start a church in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. And I did it. I did just about every wrong thing you can do starting the church. Um, but I was still convinced it was, it was going to go okay. And in my mind, um, I was convinced of a couple things. One, I was a decent communicator. And so I got into starting this church, and I realized very quickly that there is a difference between being a decent communicator and being able to speak every week. Right? Because if you speak every week to a crowd of people, it's not enough to be a decent communicator. You've got to be creative. If you're not creative... You run out of all your best stories very quickly, okay? And that's what happened to me. And then all of a sudden, I'm now preparing, like I was speaking twice a week. I'm having to prepare two messages a week. I've used all my best stories, and I'm not that creative. And so it was work, and I hated it. Like, for me, it was like writing papers in college, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I hate writing papers to this day. And so I avoided classes in college that I had to write papers in, okay? But now all of a sudden, I'm in a job where that's one of my primary responsibilities. And, um, and I'm miserable, okay? The second thing is, is if you're in a small church, right, you wear, you wear lots of hats. And one of them is you have to be a good shepherd. And by that, I mean you need to be good at comforting people when they're struggling, and I'm not that good at that. Because what would happen was is someone would come in and talk to me and they would say, hey, let me tell you about my, you know, these marriage problems I'm having. And I would listen and I would nod my head and I would be attentive and we would pray. And then I would say, hey, you should do X and Y and Z. Okay? And then they would leave my office. And I would think, okay, that went well. Now, roll the clock forward three weeks. Okay? The person is back in my office. Now, do you think anything has changed in their marriage? No. Okay? And so I ask, well, hey, did you do X and Y and Z? And, and what do they say? No. Okay? Well, now I'm out of options. Right? Because if you're not going to do X and Y and Z, you know, what are we doing here? And so I'm in a job that I thought I was going to be good at, and I'm terrible at it. And the truth about the church that I was leading in Virginia, the people that were doing great were, you know how I drew that leadership curve? The people that were self-starters, they were thriving. And, um, but the truth is, is they would thrive if you gave them a Bible and you threw them in the desert with five other people. They would thrive. Okay? Those people were doing great. Everyone else was like, man, you are a lousy shepherd. Okay? And so, uh, you know, I, I can make light of it now, but that was the most painful time in my life is when you have a dream 
and you realize you're not that good at it. And so, um, you know, fortunately, I had people that came alongside of me and loved me and just said, hey, guess what? You're not that good at this. And, um, and so then that started me thinking, okay, what am I good at? Okay, now I'm not that good at many things, but one thing that just comes natural to me is the kinds of stuff we're talking about today, right? Which is this whole strategic, visionary, leadership kinds of stuff. And so I hit a crossroads where I'm like, okay, I either got to figure out how to get good at stuff that I'm not good at, or I just need to hand the church over to someone else who's going to be much better at than me and go and develop the gifts God's given me. And so um, over the course of about six months, because I'm a slow learner, um, it became more and more, uh, I realized more and more that that's what I needed to do. Okay? So I thought to myself, where can I go to develop the gifts that God has given me? And I thought, okay, business school, that's where they develop strategic leaders. Okay, now I have one huge competitive advantage. I'm a pastor, okay? No one who is a pastor applies to business school, okay? And so I'm the perfect diversity candidate, okay? (laughs) And if you know anything about business schools, right, you know that diversity is the thing they love the most, right? And so me and, you know, my name, where am I going to go? And so I think, okay, well, Harvard sounds like a good place to apply. Why don't I apply there? And so I send off, you know, um, I send off my application and largely because I am a diversity candidate, although it doesn't look like it to you guys, right? They let me in, okay? Which might've been the biggest mistake they've ever made. Um, And so, uh, but I get up there and the very first day, I kid you not, there's 800 people in a room. And the director of admissions is on the stage. And you know how they always tell you uh, how wonderful you are as a class, right? So they're up there and they're saying, we've got this guy who played in the NHL professional hockey for 14 years. And we've got this person that started a billion dollar oil company in Russia. And so the, the, the dean of admissions goes through about five of these. And then finally says, and we've got a community church pastor. And I'm like, that's me, you know? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so that started me down a path where I was at, I I got my MBA there, joined a company in in Dallas called the Boston Consulting Group, and then went to a hedge fund. And now I'm back in the church, but I'm in the church in a very different role. Okay. Because if I was the speaker every Sunday, none of you would be coming here. Right. Okay. But what I can do is this kind of stuff. And then, you know, once a year, I'll speak because I can save all my best stories, okay? <laughs> and so it works out for me. But does that make sense? It, what I would tell you is, is in leading yourself, you've got to figure out what you're good at. And in areas of giftedness, focus on your strengths, okay? And where you're weak, that's where you need to get team members around you, okay? Yes, Yeah, there's, what I would say is there's a ton of them. Strength Finders is one of them. Myers-Briggs is a good, good test. What I would do is um, I would, uh, e- okay, if, you, if, you, if I were you, I would email my 50 best friends. And I would say to them one of two things. Either you give me three words that you think best describe me, 
Or, you know, I want you to tell me what it is you think I do well. Okay, in one or two or three word descriptions. And what will happen um, is, is uh, well, the good thing about that is none of your friends are going to tell you what you stink at, right? So it's a great affirmation exercise, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but you will get a very clear view of what your friends think. Um, and, uh, you know, in business sometimes, it's very hard to drag the truth out of people that work for you. Because they just feel like they've got no vested interest in telling you the truth unless it's, they're blowing sunshine at you. Okay? So in that instance, one of my favorite tricks is I'll call someone into the office and I'll say, hey, scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is Jesus. Okay? Okay? How do you think I did on that? Okay? Now, you could say, on a scale of 1 to 10, where Jack Welsh is 10, or whoever, you know, your icon of a leader is. Okay? And I don't care what number of people give me as long as it's not a 10. Because what I'll say is, let's say, let's say, oh, John, that was terrific. You were a 9.2, okay? Then what I'll say, my very question is, okay, give me one idea to help me be a 9.3, okay? And then I just don't let them get up until they give me one idea. Because basically that conversation goes, man, I don't know. I mean, you're just, you're just hitting it out of the ball. You're doing so good, okay? No, no, I know there's something I can do better because I'm clearly not Jesus, okay? And then if you wait long enough, they'll tell you. And so, um, you know, I did this just yesterday with a guy um, who works for me. And, uh, and so his feedback to me was, is, you know what? Sometimes I need information from you or I'll send you an idea and I feel like it disappears into a black hole. And, and, then, he, and then he added all these caveats around it to make it sound like it really wasn't a weakness. Like, you know, I know you're busy and I know you're dealing with these big things and da, da, da. Okay, okay that was truth which means I need to tighten the feedback loop to make him more effective at what he does and to raise his level of satisfaction on the job. Is that, is that, so that's what I would do, okay? But, um, yes? I would say also you can go to Jenny's call's website. If you're a Yep. Yep. That's a great idea. And all I would just say is, this is a discovery process. Okay? And for me, it, it's, it took me the better part of 15 years to figure out what I was really good at. And so, um, I would say, give yourself grace, try a lot of things, you know, and then get people around you to be brutally honest with you. And, and, and you'll hone it in over time. And, you know, while, while I'm tangenting, I, I will say, you know what? I think one of the greatest dangers of people being Christians is, is this idea that God will give you a vision for your life that is a 50-year vision, you know? Because in, he's never worked that way with me. Like, if you ask me every year on my birthday where I would be in five years, okay? If you ask from the time I was 18, I'm 49 now, okay? So what's that, 31 years. I would be wrong for 31 consecutive years, Okay, that's my predictive ability. And what I would say about that is, is God's plan and my plan aren't the same at points. And so I've moved away from trying to figure out where I need to be in 20 years. And my thing now is, is, okay, how do I develop the gifts God has given me? And how do I use them faithfully so that, you know, he can use me more. And then I'm just going to trust that he's going to direct my steps to where he can use me. And, um, and I think that's just a huge danger, you know, 
And by the way, I think that's where people get really disillusioned as well. Because what happens is when their plan's not working out, and if God's plan just happens to be different, they end up blaming God. You know, like, God, how could you do this to me? Or sometimes they blame themselves. Which, and that, you know, if I wasn't just such an idiot, if I wasn't such a sinner, then this wouldn't have happened to me. You know, or if, if you're really good at this, you blame other people, right? The reason my marriage is not what it is is because I'm married to that, okay? And they externalize it. And what I would tell you is, is look, while we are idiots, okay, God says in James chapter one, rejoice whenever you face trials of many times because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. God's plan for us is not to make us happy. It's to make us more like his son. And the way he does that is a lot of times through hardship and struggles and tough times. And so when we embrace those rather than, you know, pushing God away, um, then we're going to grow. Okay, so that's, that's, a, that's my commercial for, for the tangent. Okay, so areas of strength, you know, that's focus on, focus on those. Figure out what they are, lock down on them. Okay, now in areas of character, focus on your weaknesses. Okay, so giftedness, strengths, character, weaknesses. And here, you know, I just want to say um, that in the Old Testament, there is king after king after king in which the, the storyline is basically this. This person did this and this and this well. Okay, and then comes the magic word. Do you know what the magic word is? But. But. And then it goes on to say something that they didn't do right. And it is always the but statement that will sabotage you. And, um, and a lot of times, if it's when you're struggling. that Because the but statement begins to look really attractive. And it sneaks up on you. And so if you want to finish well, you've got to have a stranglehold on what are the but statements in your life. And what are you doing to deal with them? And so, you know, that could be, you know, you're a workaholic. It could be that you deal with lust. It could be you've got an anger issue. You know, it, it could be one of, of a million things. Okay? But you better get your arms around that. Okay? Now, I grew up in a world where it was project your strengths, hide your weaknesses. Okay? And so... Um, readily acknowledging what, what my character defects are is not something that comes naturally to me, right? Like my wife would just say I'm deceived. Okay, that's, that's kind of how that would go. Um, but it's an ability to go, okay, what are my issues? Okay, anger is an issue for me. Um, you know, uh, pride is an issue for me. You know, where I think, it, on my worst days with my pride, I can think I can come to Watermark and do God's work and I don't even have to pray to him. Right, like I'm good enough at this that I can do it all by myself. Okay, that's how deceived I am. And um, and so it's an ability to have a death grip on those. And the question I would ask myself is, uh, there are a couple. One, if I was going to explode, okay, what would be the reason why? You know, if I was going to trash my life, what would I fall to? Um, you know. Uh, and, and, and so those kinds of things. So now Greg's going to get into that in terms of how are you doing, but just have a death grip on, on that. Okay, so on strengths, 
we focus on our giftedness, right? And on character weaknesses. All right. Can I hand the yeah? That's great. Let me hand the ball off to you. Great. Well, that's perfect. Let's see if we catch up to where we were. Awesome. So uh, my name is Greg Crooks, and as John said, I get to serve uh, on staff here in our young adults ministry, which is a huge joy. Uh, I've never thought about going to Harvard or thought I might have a chance of getting in, but after that, you know, yeah, being a pastor, maybe uh, I got a shot. That's, your, so that's great. Join the Peace Corps and then apply. <laughs> that's awesome. So uh, with that said, uh, talking about self-leadership and our first stop being, uh, who are you? You know, what are your strengths? Uh, what, uh, let's talk about your character. And then that last slide, which is so great, know who you are, like who you are, and, and just be who you are. And so operating out of how God's made you. And from there, I want to talk about the second idea, which is just how, how are we doing, you know, as a leader, as a man, as a woman, as a follower of Christ, how, how are we doing? You know, what is the condition of our hearts? What's the condition of kind of our tank, if you will? How do we, how do we monitor that? How do we check that kind of on an ongoing basis? What are those triggers? What are those warning lights that we need to watch as leaders so that we can bring the best us to the table, to the team that we're leading, the organization, and those sorts of things? So this has been so helpful to me over the years. Hopefully you guys grabbed a handout on this. It's got a lot of detail, but I'm just going to run really quickly. And it's just a visual. We call them gauges. You know, if, if there's three different gauges that we need to keep our eye on as leaders, we think these are the three biggest ones, okay? Spiritual gauge, physical gauge, and emotional gauge. And so first, I think most important, we would all agree in here, the spiritual gauge. And so, you know, my Bible says that I'm made in God's image, created literally for a relationship with a creator. And so how, how am I doing in that, I think, is the first question. Am I loving God? Is my heart connected to him? Am I abiding in him, remaining in him, as John says in chapter 15? What is the condition of my walk with the Lord? And so I think you got to know, I think this is really individual for everybody. What, what are the things in my life that when I do, it makes me love Jesus more? It, makes, it stirs up in me affection, love, worship for Christ. And I think we just got to be freakishly devoted to doing those things. And so I think it absolutely is Spiritual disciplines, those sorts of things, reading the Bible, totally uh, memorizing scripture, journaling, uh, worship, fasting. But I think you guys got to know, we all have to know, hey, what are those things for me? So that might be for you uh, waking up early in the morning with your iPod and your favorite worship music and just listening and being still. I I love to be outside. You know, I love to be in the mountains. I love to be by still waters. When I do that, my heart just uh, worships. And so it might be uh, painting for you. It might be, uh, I don't know what it is for you, but I think we all got to audit all of the different times that we've spent with the Lord and go, hey, when is the when is my heart the most filled? Is it great authors? Is it great old? Is it Tozier? When I read him, I just, I love God more. Is it great podcasts? Is it listening to awesome teachers communicate the word in a really creative way? What are those things that really make you love God I think we got to just do them it, it, just to make sure that our tank is full as it relates to that. So abiding in Jesus, first and foremost. And then second one, the physical gauge. I'm no expert on this, but uh, I absolutely know that when I'm not sleeping, uh, I've got a five-month-old right now, so when I'm up all night and not sleeping, that's tough. I, I notice a huge difference in when I'm getting three, four, five hours of sleep as to when I'm, I'm sleeping all the way through the night. And so are we sleeping? Are we getting good rest? Or are we working like crazy? Are we, are we operating under God's rhythm of, of taking a day totally off of Sabbath, of saying, hey, I'm not going to work on any of my personal to-dos. I'm not going to catch up on all those emails. I'm going to take a day off 
and I'm not going to do anything for that day. Am I, am I operating in God's design in that way? Um, am, am I working out? You know, I, again, I'm not an expert on this, but I know when I work out, I have crazy, way more energy. I'm more confident. Um, I, I just feel a lot better. I sleep better. So are we, are we working out? Are we getting cardio in? How about our diet? You know, um, I love, you know, in and out Burger, I love a double-double, animal style with fries, animal style, and a Coke. I love it. But, you know, in the afternoon, I come back, and, and I'm more suited for a nap than I am for any sort of work or meetings and those sorts of things. And so that's one day. But if that's us, every day, I don't know about you guys, but I just, I just feel super flat. And so uh, what we're eating, I think all those sorts of things are huge. Is our schedule just loaded up? This is a hard one for me. Are we going from thing to thing, meeting to meeting, and then off work into the next thing? Are we just going crazy, or are we wearing ourselves out? How are we doing? How's our physical body? Are we loving ourselves well in that way? I think that's huge. And then uh, lastly, and, and this is what Bill Hybels calls the most overlooked gauge, is the emotional gauge. And so I happen to be an introvert. Okay, and that doesn't mean I don't like people, but that means that when I spend a lot of time with people, it kind of drains me. You know, extroverts are, are the opposite. When they're with people, they, they really fill their cup. So I think we've got to know, hey, how are we wired? What are the things that, that empty our cup? What are the things that fill our cup? And just knowing those, knowing how uh, we're doing as it relates to that. I think all of us here, we all come from different places, but we have things uh, that, that really drain us. And so uh, intense things. So maybe that's a board meeting. Maybe that's a, a deal that's closing. Maybe that's just a long, full day of travel. It's a sermon. It's a class that you're teaching where you just go, man, that was good, but I'm exhausted. And, and I know well that my tank is on empty. How do we go about filling that back up? And, uh, and hopefully starting that process of filling it up before you're, you're too empty. And uh, you know, one of the things that I've found is that doesn't happen overnight, right? It's not something you just kind of, more like a battery, you plug it in, it takes some time to recharge. And so uh, that being said, what are the things that, um, that, that fill you up emotionally? I think it's got to start with, uh, what, what do I love to do? What are some of my favorite things that when I do those, my cup is full. I, I love uh, to do them. So, so for me, uh, I, I mentioned I've got a brand new daughter. I love spending time with her. I love spending time with my girls. It, it's amazing. It's, it's like nothing I've ever uh, done in my life. I love playing golf. I love hunting. I love fishing. Anything outside, if I can go to the lake, uh, that is amazing. I like to work out and run sometimes. Um, I like Duck Dynasty, all right? I think that's one of the best TV shows that's ever been made, and so I watch that as, uh, as often as I can. But, but I love, these are the things that I love to do. Eric, what do you love to do, man? What's your favorite thing to do? Uh, I like being outside in the sunshine. Whatever. Awesome. Do it. Luke, what do you think? Everything that I said. All right. You can't steal mine. All right. Sammy, what do you love to do? Movies. Movies? Awesome. Do it. Nate? Board games, all right. But yeah, and so whatever you love, whatever you love to do, uh, let's just make sure that we do it, all right? And so those are the things that we like to keep our eye on. And if you're anything like me, I'm not the most objective person to speak into my own life and say, how am I doing? How's my tank on all these things? Other people, men in my life, my wife, they're much more uh, apt to notice how I'm doing, how, how full is my tank. And so this is just saying, hey, we need other men, we need other women around us that can speak into those, that can hold us accountable, that can say, hey, uh, it looks like you're stressed. You know, it looks like you're, you're tired. How are you doing? And uh, are you getting away? Are you working yourself 
like crazy. And so I need other men to speak into my life that can encourage me, that can hold me accountable to the things that I say, hey, these are the things that are the best for me. I've got to do these. But left to my own devices, I will work myself to death. I'll get my computer out at night and keep working, and I'll just go, 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 and I won't get away and do the very things that actually uh, end up bringing me life. And so huge Something that we talk a lot about, about the watermark and getting community around you. And then uh, lastly, I love this quote. I think it ties together everything that we've just talked about. And it's just the premise is this. The, the very best thing that we can do for our fill-in-the-blank, for the company that we lead, for the organization that we are leading, the team, our family, our kids, uh, our community group, our friend group, whatever that is, is this well-led self. A full heart that we bring to the table, rested, uh, passionate, full tank, ready to rock, ready to roll. There's nothing else, nothing better that we can do for those that we love than bring to the table the very best uh, us that we can. All right? Any questions on that? Awesome. All right, great. Okay, so let's take, I'll tell you what, can we do a five-minute break? I know we got started late because we switched rooms. There is food back there. The restrooms are right out there. Come back, and we'll start talking about how you lead others one-on-one. Okay. Okay, so now we want to talk about leading others one-on-one. And so before we dive into the specifics of how you lead a boss or how you lead a subordinate or how you lead Lattery, the one thing that I think I want to say is the currency of leadership is trust, okay? If people trust you, you can speak all kinds of truth to them and it will be received well. And your leadership will be much easier if you have a lot of trust built up with people. Now, there's a book out there. It's called The Speed of Trust by a guy named Stephen Covey. It's actually the son of the guy who wrote The Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. But in that book, he says, if you have trust, then speed goes up and cost goes down. And what he means by that is, is if, if you and I are going to do a business deal and we, there's a high level of trust, we can do that on a handshake. We don't need lawyers. We don't need due diligence. We don't need lots of time to figure it out. Okay? So you can do things much more quickly, and the cost is much lower. Correspondingly, if there's not trust, okay, well, now all of a sudden I got to get lawyers involved, and I got to do all kinds of due diligence, and it's going to take months. And so what he says in this book is he says, look, trust is essential in leadership and in business relationships. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting. When someone comes to work at Watermark, the very first day, um, they go through orientation. And, you know, historically, orientation is here's your computer, here's our employee manual, you know, here's where you sit, okay? And about a year ago, I said, okay, I want to meet with everybody who's starting their very first day. And what I want to say to them is, number one, outside of your personal walk with Jesus... Trust is the single most important thing you have to do effective ministry. Because we work with a whole group of people that if they trust us, again, we can speak very hard things and they, and they will take it to heart. Correspondingly, if they don't trust us, we're dead in the water. And the thing about Watermark is, is that you know, for 13 years, people have been trying to build trust with everyone who comes here. And so when someone starts here on staff they get to benefit from that huge bank account of trust. But now, what their actions are going to affect whether that trust account is growing or getting depleted. 
And so we just want to say to people, guard that with your life. Because that is everything if you're going to be effective in ministry. And correspondingly, in, you know, in, the, in the marketplace, if you have high trust, you ought to, every time you interact with people, you should be thinking, how do I build my trust account with this person? And so what I thought we'd do is just talk very quickly about how you build trust and how trust gets eroded in relationships. And so if this is trust here, there are really two levers you've got to build trust. One is character. Okay? And the other is competence. Now, you can subdivide each of these down and you'd say, okay, character is a combination of integrity and what I would just call as being other-centered. Okay? And competence is a matter of giftedness and your track record. Okay? And so here's what I mean. One way to build trust with people is by being a person of, of, of character, a person of integrity. And integrity just means what you say, right? You say what you mean and you mean what you say. You... You, there's just a sense in which you are a truth teller. Okay, so people, people can say, okay, that guy shoots straight or that gal shoots straight. And then correspondingly, people have to know that you have their best interests in mind. Because if people don't think you have their best interests in mind, you are not going to build much trust. And so we want to behave in ways where we are constantly in our relationships looking out for the other person. Because if, if, if people are convinced of that, then that's going to build trust. Okay? Correspondingly, over here, you know, like let's say you're the leader of, an, of a small group of people. They're going to want to know, okay, does this person have the giftedness to do this? Right? Can I really count on them when the chips are down? I mean, do they have the wiring? And then correspondingly, what's their track record? So uh, do they have a history of succeeding in these kinds of things? And so if we go back to this, I would just ask a question. If you're in a brand new relationship with someone, what is the fastest way to build trust? Is it on the character side or the competence side? Okay, I'm hearing some characters. Anybody want to argue for competence? Okay, no. I would tell you the fastest way to build trust with people is competence. You tell someone you're going to do something and you go and hit it out of the park. Okay. So in the marketplace or in an organizational setting, you want to show very quickly that you are a person that gets things done quickly and well. And the reason why is is this character stuff, that emerges over time. This is very difficult to assess in an hour's conversation, right? Because characters, that just gets revealed in terms of this this stuff. But this, you have an ability to move the lever very quickly. So if you're in a new job, the first three months are critical to establishing your competency. You know, with your boss, with the people that are working with you, for people that are laterally, you got to double down on that. Okay, now let me ask another question. What's the fastest way to lose trust with people? Is it on the competence side or the character side? Character. Okay, all you need to do 
is, is start behaving in a way that is either self-centered or you're saying one thing and you're doing another and you're going to make withdrawals. And so um, what I would tell you is, is that in most instances, this is like a bank account. It goes up or down. And inevitably, there's going to be times where there's withdrawals. Maybe it's just a business misunderstanding. Okay? And let, me, let me give you a great example last night. Last night, my oldest daughter, um, you know, we take her over to a friend's house, and we're supposed to pick her up at 11 o'clock after you know, the rest of our family watches a movie. Okay, And so the movie wraps up, and it's about 10.15, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I don't want to go get her early. I'll let her stay some extra time. Okay? Um, but then I was, you know, my, uh, my six-year-old crawled into my lap, went to sleep. I dozed off. Okay? I'm supposed to pick her up at 11 o'clock. Okay? She texts me at 11.45 and says, where are you? Right? I'm asleep. I don't get the text until like 1 o'clock when I wake up. Okay? So she ends up having to spend the night you know, at our friend's house. And, you know, I'm sure my friend is thinking, what's the matter with him? Do you know? I mean, he forgets his daughter to come pick her up. Okay, that is, that's, that's a trust withdrawal with my friend, with my daughter. Okay, so when those kinds of things happen, you better have trust in the bank or you're in trouble. And if you're not cognizant of this, you can be making withdrawals in your relationships and all of a sudden something goes wrong and you need trust and you do not have it. And so you've got to be very proactive about building this as you go. And you've got to understand that you've got these two levers to do it. Now, on this side of the fence, when we talk about giftedness and stuff like that, sometimes you get points like... You get points because you've been doing a job for 30 years. So you've got experience. You know, or you get points because you've got gray hair, you know, and people just think you look like you're going to know what you do. Okay? You have various levers. If you are young, right? Just about the only lever you've got is expertise in an area. So you better pull that lever hard. Like you better be the subject master of whatever it is the conversation's talking about. But you've just got to be cognizant of this. How am I building this trust account so that I can tap into it? So this is one thing that will that'll show up in all of these different areas. Is there any questions about this? Does this make sense to people? Okay. And it's just a matter of being cognizant of it because a lot of people aren't. And again, you know, when we talk about keep doing, stop doing, start doing, I'm in relationships sometimes where I, people, I see people doing small stuff that's eroding trust and you just got to call them out on it. And so I was in a, um, I was in a relation. Uh, w- one of the guys who uh, recently came to work for me would make these, um, he would, we would be in a meeting and he would make a comment about a piece of a project that wasn't his in a disparaging way. And so, um, and, and, and in a dismissive way and he's half joking but there's a, there's a level of truth under that. Do you know what I mean? Okay, now we operate in a team environment. Okay, you cannot go into meetings on a consistent basis and submarine other people that are in the meetings. Okay, that is not going to earn you friends. And so you, I had to sit down with them and say, look, I love you. You're, here's what you're doing well. Keep doing that. This, you got to stop because you are eroding trust. And, you know, to his credit... Um, 
he's, you know, he said, you know what? Every once in a while, my wife will say I do that to her. Thank you for telling me that. Okay? Now, I'm going to ride him on that. Okay? Because my job is to make him better. But you've just got to be, you've got to be aware of that going around. Who in your life that works for you is good at building trust and who's not? And typically what I will find, like in the marketplace situations, is you will get people that are very smart, that are very good at strategically, but they neglect the relational dimension. And so what ends up happening is, is they end up with a whole bunch of people that work for them, that will follow them because they're smart. But they don't feel loved or cared about. The best leaders are the ones who are not only good and smart and strategic. They make people on their teams feel loved and wanted and needed. And, um, you know, and so this, by the way, just that's my Achilles heel. You know, I just, just coming out of an environment where competence is king. And, and, and there's a sense in which, you know, I'm glad you did your job well. That's why we pay you the big bucks. Okay. And if I want to raise my game as a leader, it's going to be in an, on the ability to, to be an encourage and love people and to con- continuously affirm them. Now, we're still getting the same results, but now people feel like they're loved. And then they will give everything they have to make sure the mission gets accomplished. Okay, so that's one whole thing. Let's go to the next slide, Greg. This we've talked about, right? It's the key in leading others is initiating. You own the relationship. And, we'll, and Greg's going to talk about that even with your boss. Mm. How do you own the quality of the relationship? Second, you know, are you loving and encouraging the people around you? And then third, are you the truth teller? Are you the catalyst that's making people better? And so um, typically in this situation, what you want to do is in person-to-person relationships, you want to speak the truth. Now, once the group agrees on something and stacks hands and you leave the room, now we're all on the same page. We are a team. But you want to have that, that reputation as being a truth teller. Okay, next slide. And then this is, is now those principles we're going to apply to these four sets of relationships. So any questions before we jump into that? Again, what I want to do is teach you guys not just how am I doing it initiating and loving, encouraging and being a catalyst, but how am I teaching the people around me to do that? So in my instance, you know, we have five kids, the oldest of whom is 12. And every day before they get out of the car, when I take them to school, I'm like, be a leader today. Okay. Well, it's one thing to say, be a leader. Okay. What's that mean? Right? So it's breaking it down and saying, I want you to initiate. At lunchtime, I want you to find the kid that's sitting all by themselves and you go sit with them. Okay? I want you, sometimes I'll say in my car, there is a prize tonight for the person that finds, that can tell me three specific ways that they encourage someone today. So I'll do that stuff all the time. And, um, you know, it's so funny because little kids will come back and they'll say things like, well, I told them that, uh, that their, their shirt looked really nice. I'm like, okay, I think you're missing the point. That's not the kind of, okay, that's okay, but you can do better. Okay, but this is a training process because I want my kids to own relationships that they're in. I want them to be encouragers and I want them to be truth tellers. And that's true for everyone that works around me. And the best way to do that is to focus people on that and give them very concrete handles for this is how you get better. And very specifically, when I tell you to be a leader, this is what I mean. And you're defining it. Okay, so let me hand it over to Greg and he's going to talk about now how does this apply when you are leading your boss? All right. 
bosses. This is how we know that what John said earlier is true, that God wants to make us holy and not happy. Um, I've, I was uh, eight years in finance and private equity before I came here, and so I've had some, uh, some amazing bosses. And uh, if, if I would have known some of this stuff, it would have helped me so much. But John covered the first thing, which, which actually I think is surprising the first time you hear it, and it's just that we are responsible for uh, the quality, for the relationship with our boss. We initiate with them. We take the lead. Hey, here's what I need to talk to you about. Here's the, the agenda for our time, for the quality, for the depth, for the content of what we talk about when we meet. We initiate. We take the lead on that relationship. A lot of our bosses, John, has a lot to do, right? Rob has a lot to do. And so uh, people under them Say, hey, I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to initiate and, and be responsible for this relationship. And then, secondly, we don't have to stay anywhere where we're working, right? This isn't Russia, you know. I don't even know what that means. But um, <laughs> we don't have to. I heard that in a movie sometime. Uh, we don't have to stay anywhere that we're working, right? We, we're free. We can go wherever. We can work at a different place. But so long as we are, these two things, they have to be true. Right? If we're going to stay at an organization, we have to be for the mission. We have to be for the organization. And then specifically, as we're talking about here, we have to be for the success of our boss. We have to be saying in the morning, hey, I'm going to come to work and I am going to be dedicated to the success of my boss, to making him look good, to making her look good. I am going to be about that. That's hard. All right. What does this look like? Uh, five quick things that have helped me so much as, as soon as I heard these things. Uh, first and foremost, clarity. Knowing, uh, setting expectations, understanding full well, hey, what, what is expected of me? What are the, the things that uh, I can do today, this week, this month to add value to our organization? John has everybody on staff say, hey, go Monday, try this. Say, what are three things that I can do over the next 30 days, over the next 60 days to add value to you, boss, to this organization, to this team? What can I do to add value? And so as, as other things come up, right, and from other people, another boss that you have, you go, okay, now, where does this fit within that? You know, I'm working on these three things. They're on the front of my plate now. Now, where does this fit? And reprioritizing. And this takes a lot of hard work. This takes time to be an effective communicator. It's hard work. But it is so important to say, hey, what is expected of me? I want to make sure that I ha I'm spinning my wheels, my time, my energy on the right things that are going to add value to you and to our organization. All right? Secondly, uh, know your boss. Work really hard. Be, intentionally, be intentional to know them. What, what's their work style? And then you, again, you adapt to that. You adapt to their work style. Okay? So I work right now for JP, Jonathan McCluda. You guys know him. Um, a, a couple of things that I've learned about him. He doesn't like structure at all. Okay. I, I love structure. I'm a planner. All right. I'm a nerd. And so I like to be planning my days. I'd like to go into a meeting. I'd like to come, if I'm honest, Monday morning, I like to come into a 9 a.m. meeting with JP. And I say, here's our agenda. And we're going to meet weekly uh, every Monday. And we're going to go through all the things that we need to talk about. That would not bless him at all. All right. He's got 10 other meetings that day. And so we don't have a weekly meeting. We don't have that scheduled. 
But I'll tell you what happens all the time, twice a day, three times a day. He'll call me and he'll be like, hey, you know, I'm going between, you know, these places or I've got five minutes. And so what I do is I keep a running agenda. You know, if I've got 15 things on my mind, I'll write those down in the notes on my phone. I'm like, great. Here's the things that I want to talk to you about. And so that's one of the ways that I've learned I can bless him, being unstructured, just taking advantage of his downtime. If he's leaving at lunch, if he's got five minutes, boom, let's have our, our weekly meeting there. That's been super helpful. You learn them, you adjust to them. Uh, thirdly, information communication, all right? Uh, communicating with them with excellence. And so first, I think we have to learn, hey, what are the things that our bosses really care about? What are the things that they want to weigh in on, that they want to know? What are the decisions that they want to speak into? Okay, that's one side. And then part of that is, the other side of that is, hey, I don't want to know some of that stuff. I don't want you to tell me those little minutiae details. You run with that. That's why you're here. That's why I pay you, so that you can run with that. And so learning, what are the decisions that they want to be speaking into, they want to weigh in on? What are the things that they want to talk about? And being a great communicator as it relates to those things. And then on the other side... Hey, if, if you've empowered me to, to do that and run with that, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to waste my. I'm not going to waste your time on that. So huge, and that takes hard work, right? Figuring out those things. That's a learning process, and so it, it's huge, though. Uh, fourthly, uh, submit to their authority, right? In, in the end, and so uh, I don't think I get paid to be a yes guy. So when I come into a meeting. I have passionate opinions. I just do. I'm an opinionated guy. Here's what I think. Here's the way I think we should go. Here's, here's the thing I've thought through. Let's go here. And so I will passionately argue respectfully with my boss. I will um, take the other side of things in a meeting. I do that all the time. Um, but in the end, we make a decision. And sometimes, oftentimes, it's not the one that I would have made. Okay. And so as soon as that happens, as soon as we walk out that door, I'm submitting. You know, and, and I'm committing to that. I'm, I'm on the same page. As soon as we go, hey, I'm, I'm fully on your team. I am committed to that decision from here on out. Boom. And so submitting to their authority in the end when a decision is made. All right. And then lastly, this is my, my very favorite one. I probably should have put this first. But, um, man, we want to be the most faithful, the most excellent, the most trustworthy, the most loyal on our team. A lot of us, you know, we, we work for non-believers right? And, and so what is the fastest way to earn their trust? I promise if your work quality stinks, you're not going to do it, you know? But if you're the most faithful, you're the most loyal, you're the most excellent, everything that they give you is amazing, right? If we look in uh, the Old Testament at, at Daniel or Joseph, they were incredible at what they did. They were faithful. They were excellent. One of my very favorite verses that I've taught myself every single day, literally when I come to work, is Titus 2.10. And it just says, Work hard so that you can be fully trusted, so that in every way you would make the teachings about God, our Savior, attractive. Work hard so you can be fully trusted, so that in every way you would make the teachings about God, our Savior, attractive. And so work crazy hard. Be the best person on your team. A lot of us, we want to move up in an organization. We want another job. We want someone else's job. We want to move over to this part of the organization. But let's all start with this. Hey, wherever we are uh, on Monday, let's, let's make excellence happen there. Let's be the best people right there wherever we are. And I think that the rest is going to take care of itself. All right? And so we want to lead our boss. We, we want to add value to them. We want to be for them. But it, on the other side of that, and probably first and foremost, is that we, we work for the Lord. Right? In Colossians, we see this over and over again. These are three of, of six really easy ones we could put up there. But we work for, first and foremost for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. But I think when we're doing this right, I think it looks like a lot of the things that 
um, that we've talked about, right? And so Galatians 1.10, we know if we're not uh, working for the Lord, if we're working for men, we're not serving Christ, right? We're serving ourselves. And then Proverbs 29, fear of man, trying to live for the approval of man, I mean, that will be a snare, okay? And, and we all know how that goes. Whenever we're living for the approval of people, man, it, it just doesn't work out, all right? So is that helpful? Any questions on, uh, on that section, what it means to lead up, to lead your boss? All right. Okay, so you're hearing us loud and clear. What we would say is if you don't have a good relationship with your boss, right, is it your fault? Okay, not necessarily, but it's your responsibility to fix it. Okay, so in my marriage, you know, every time my wife and I are at odds, it's not necessarily my fault, but it is my responsibility to reconcile it. Okay, so we are going to have bosses that we really don't like at times or that are just flat out lousy, okay? No excuse. And so we've got to find a way to work well with them. Okay, so now let's transition this and we're going to pick up the speed just a little bit because we want to spend some time at the end and we don't want to run out of time. But this is now leading people that are underneath you. So this is just the exact opposite of what we were dealing with before. And so the first thing is, is if people work for you, you have got to make sure that they understand what is expected of them. And so the biggest disconnect I see in boss and subordinate relationships is the boss is expecting one thing, or, you know, maybe the boss is just saying, you know, I don't care what you do, just get me results. And the subordinate is going in a different direction. And so then it comes time for reviews, and the subordinate thinks they've done a great job. And the boss thinks they've done a lousy job. And so on the front end, if people are working for us, they need to know what's expected of them. And so very specifically, the way that that works for everyone that works under me is is we will sit down and we want to identify what are the three most critical ways that they're going to add value to their area over the next three to six months. And then every time I meet with them, that's what I want to talk about. And so what will typically happen in here is, is in ministry, it is very easy to get caught up in running whatever it is, whatever your organization is. And you can lose sight of building it. And there's a difference between running something and building something. I want the leaders under me focused on building it so that it is bigger, faster, stronger, better after six months or a year. And so everything that I'm focused on with that, with them, is how do I help them to lock down on the critical, most important areas. Because it, the reality is, is at any time in any given business, there are two or three things that really matter. And if you get those right, everything else is going to take care of itself. And correspondingly, if you ignore those things, nothing else matters. And so for me, working with people underneath me, it's helping them to figure out what are those two or three things that really matter. And then let's lock down with all of our energy on those things. And so I want to make sure that that's very clear. Question? Sure. So uh, let me take, um, let's take Wagner, for example. You know, uh, Todd, who's our senior pastor. Okay. Every Sunday, he needs to do a message. And he has got people emailing him all the time, right, with concerns or questions or criticisms or praises or, okay. 
Now, if he allows all of his time to get focused on just his message and all these emails that are circulating around him, he is not going to have time to build the leadership at Watermark. And so what's going to end up happening is is you're going to end up with him speaking well on Sundays, handling all these people, but the real engine that makes an organization grow is always its leaders, always. And so unless he is taking time to say, who are the five or 10 or 15 developing leaders that I need to be pouring my life into, then what's going to end up happening is, is we might run it well, but over any sustained period of time, we're not renewing ourselves with leaders. So that would be an example, right? Where I would say to Todd, look, one of the, your three most critical things is who are you developing? And so, you know, uh, with our community groups, you know, one of the questions that I constantly have is because of, look, what I would tell you is, is guess what? There is no perfect organizational model but you do get to choose your problems, okay? So in Watermark's community group structure, we don't force groups to break up every two years and reform. Like, if you're in a group that you like, you can be with them for a long period of time. But what happens is, is then our our best, most experienced leaders are locked up in groups, okay? So now we've got all these people who are new, who are coming to Watermark, and there are no experienced leaders to lead them. And so we are literally taking people with less experience and throwing them into the water and teaching them how to swim. Okay. Well, now, if that's our strategy, then what I'm saying to Rick Wisner, who's our community groups guy, is you better have a great leadership development model. And let's talk about how we are coming alongside of people to help them learn how to swim while they're in the water so that they are not drowning and other people with them are not drowning. Right? And so there's, that's one of the big three for that. And so I want him focused on that. So it's not just how are all these groups going, but what are we doing to make our leaders better? That would be one of the big three for that. Okay, so this then is that set clear expectation. The second thing I say is you've got to know your people. You've got to know what are they good at and what are they not so good at. And then you've got to put them with other people where there are compliments. And so, uh, you know, if you, here, here's an example for me. Um, administration, you know, just staying organized is not my A game. Now I can do that, but that takes a lot of energy for me. So if I'm going to build an effective team around me, I want someone that is good administratively. Like, like in my parlance, that is someone who makes the trains run on time. Okay, so I'm constantly saying, okay, who on my team can make the trains run on time? And how do we get them into that role where they're doing more of that? Okay, another area where this surfaces all the time for me is, is when you have an organization, when you all of a sudden now have not just two leaders, but let's say 20 leaders or 40 leaders or, you know, 200 leaders. Okay, you begin to understand that some people are narrow and deep people and some people are broad and wide people. Okay. Now, a narrow and deep person is someone who loves one area and they want to be the subject matter that's deep in that area. Okay. And the worst thing you can do with those people is then say, not only do I want you to run your one area, but I want you to be responsible for these other five areas as well. 
because it's just not naturally how they're wired. There are other people that are broad and wide where they context switch quickly so they can add value in three or four or five different areas and thrive in that. And that is not a a right, wrong, you know, good, bad thing. That is just how people are wired. And it's not either or. It's really more of a continuum. Okay, but if you're going to have people in critical parts of your organization, you've got to understand if they're a narrow and deep person, I want them to lock down and own one area. Okay, but I'm not going to ask them to manage five other things. Correspondingly, if they if they can context switchly and and see pattern recognition and add value across multiple areas, then I've got to figure out a way to how do I put more stuff under them? Does that does that make sense? So it, it, it's a matter of saying, oh, what are they good at? How do I move? On Watermark staff, we've moved people from department to department because we've just recognized, okay, they're really good at this. How do we help them to do more of that and less of the stuff they're not good at? So let's move them. You know, we've got another guy on our staff, Kyle Kegler, who is phenomenal at, at building things. And so we basically three or four times in the history of Watermark have said, what is the biggest challenge we're facing? Let's put Kegler in charge of that. Okay? And he, and he will grow the thing. So it's just knowing who your personnel is. This goes back to the college coach analogy. Just knowing where your players play on the field and getting them into spots where they can thrive. The next is, so that's really positioning your people for success. And then the last thing is just coaching them. Okay? And again, you know, what I would say is people way overcomplicate coaching. Coaching is just simply a matter of watching people and telling them what should you keep doing, what should you stop doing, and what do you need to start doing. But doing that consistently. And so if you, if you have people underneath you, that is your job. You know? And what ends up happening is, is and I think we've even got a slide in here on this, is what I find is that on a continuum, bosses tend to one of two, 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 two here's, here's this continuum in terms of here's a management style of a boss, okay? And down here is, is hands-on, right? Have you ever heard someone say, I'm a hands-on manager, okay? Now, what's the flip side of hands-on, okay? Micromanaging, okay? So that's someone who doesn't let anybody else do anything because they can always do it, they think they can always do it better, Okay, do we know anybody like that? Okay, great. Okay, down here is the people that would say, I am a great delegator, right? I free people up. Okay, so this is delegator. What's the downside of delegating? The downside of people that are delegators is they abdicate, right? Like they really say, hey, here's this area of responsibility, go. And then they pay no attention to it. They're not coaching, they're not probing, they're not asking any questions about how it's going. They just like, hey, you know, see at Christmas kind of thing. Okay. Now, the big thing is, is where are you on this continuum? Because all of us have a natural bent. And the truth is most people tip towards this end or this end. And you, neither one of them is good or bad. You just got to understand where am I? What are the downfalls of leading that way and how do I protect against it? Now, correspondingly, for every person that works underneath me, 
I need to understand where are they? What's their unique challenge? And how am I helping them to grow and round, get rounded as a leader? Because the truth is, is we need, sometimes we do need to be hands-on. Especially if we are working with people underneath us that are brand new. And sometimes we need to be much more hands-off. Especially if we are working with people that have a lot of experience in an area. Because, you know, if you're, if you're not hands-off with your most gifted people, I mean, they, they will, you'll suffocate them. And so that's just important to know. So that's this slide. And again, it, it's just a helpful thing that, you know, if you could take this in and to your next leaders meeting and just say to people, hey, where are you on that continuum? And you could have a conversation around, you know, like at, at Watermark, we could take that slide into our management team, which has eight people on it, and we could have a great conversation, an hour, a 90-minute conversation, or where are each of us on that, on that graph? And then what are the implications for our leadership style? That would be a terrific use of an hour and a half because we would come out knowing ourselves a little bit better and being able to lead more effectively. So that's kind of the, the essence of leading down, right? So communicate clearly, get people into positions where they can succeed, and then actively coach them and make them better, right? Same thing a college coach does with football players. All right, so let's transition Great. to leading laterally. Great. Yep. So this one has been one of the ones that's a little bit harder to define, right? It, it's easier to go, hey, if I'm uh, a direct authority over you, that, that's clear. If you're in direct authority over me, that's pretty clear. That, that's easy. But this one is gray, and so this has helped me so much. H- how do I lead my peers, right? How do I lead someone that I'm on the board with or on the team with or we're just we're coworkers, we're in the same uh, workplace together? How do I lead them effectively? And what's so great about this is that Jesus modeled all of this to a T. What, what, what was Jesus' leadership style? He was a servant. You know, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom, right? He didn't, he, he considered other people's needs as better than his. And so this is our style. Leading peers, what do we do? We serve them. We, we seek to add value to their lives. And so for, for me, you know, uh, application-wise, I like to read a lot. I love to read blogs and, and books. This is something that I stole from John. I'll read a great leadership book, and then I'll write notes on it, and I'll send it out to some people on my team, some of our leaders at the porch, and go, hey, this blessed me. I'm on this leadership journey. I'm, I'm trying to learn more each day. Hopefully, this is helpful to you. If you want to talk about it, let me know. You share your resources with me. But if, if I find value in my life, I want to share it with people. And so I always see, hey, how can I add value to different people across Watermark, on the teams that, uh, that I'm serving on? I want to serve them. I want to add value to them. Okay, and then the second one, so huge, right? Asking questions and staying away from really direct statements. I'm the king of just saying things overly direct and sharp. That doesn't work, all right? I promise you. But what about just some great questions? And again, Jesus modeled this amazingly. He would engage people and he would ask the most amazing questions. Not a whole lot of direct statements and sharp things. He would just ask a lot of amazing questions. And he was getting people to think for themselves. And so again, what, what a great model. Uh, something that we ask often at Watermark. Hey, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about that? You know, I know that this is going on in, in your team and your organization over on that part of your church. What, what are you thinking about that? And just get people thinking for themselves and just staying away 
from really sharp, direct statements, especially about somebody else's part of the church. In our community group, same thing. Hey, hey I talked to, uh, you know, the girls talked. It sounded like this is going on at y'all's house. You know, what, what are you thinking? What, what, are you, uh, what are you planning to do there? How are you planning to make that right? And, and how can I, any ways I can help you out? Asking questions is so huge. And then lastly, people are people, right? People need affirmation and people need encouragement. People need to have life breathed into them. And so I always look for, uh, regardless of where people are in an organization, just ways to affirm what they're doing. And hey, I was a part of that. It was amazing excellence. It was so great. Just encourage and, and breathe life into people. Affirm what you see. Hey, you're, I saw you doing that, man. And that's just awesome. That blessed me. I sat under your teaching at this thing, and it was awesome. Thank you so much. Just encouraging people, affirming their heart. I love uh, Truett Cathy. Um, if you're listening, thank you for the breakfast. Uh, founded uh, Chick-fil-A, right? And he wrote awesome books. And he just said, um, oh, how do I know, though? How do I know if somebody in my organization needs this? How do I know if they need affirmation? And, and how do I know if they need encouragement? He said, it's easy. If they're breathing. Right? If they're alive, if there's, if they're, if their heart is pumping and, and they're breathing, they need encouragement and they need affirmation. Alright? So those are just, that's, that's real quick. Those are three quick things on just leading sideways, leading peers. Any questions or thoughts on any of that stuff? Okay, great. So let's, let's then pick up. Um, and what we'll try and do is wrap up maybe 10 or 15 minutes early and then we'll handle questions if anybody has questions about any of this stuff. And uh, what I want to do is transition now to how to lead organizations. Before we do that, there's one slide I want to talk about, which is what do you do when someone is working underneath you and they are not thriving? Okay. So you would say, okay, I've got this problem person that I'm working with and, you know, I have tried to coach them. You know, I'm trying to speak truth to them. I'm trying to love them and it's not working. And what I would say is, is that happens, you know? And so if you're a leader and you're in a position for any length of time, that's going to happen to you. And the key to understanding that is being able to segment it and say, okay, why is it not working? And so sometimes it's not working because there is some skill or piece of knowledge that they don't know. And so, you know, that's where training will help them. If I can train them, if I can put them with someone who is doing a great job of this and they can model it for them, but it is a skill-based deficit. Sometimes the reason they're not thriving is, is um, it has to do more with their motivation. They've just lost the motivation. And, you know, that could be everything from they're struggling at home to, uh, you know, something's not going well in their life to they're lazy to who knows what it is. But it's a motivational issue, you know, where you've got to come alongside people and, um, and just, you know, say, look, it, your motivation is here and I need it to be here. And what are, what are we going to do to close that gap? And then sometimes it's a flat out giftedness thing. They're just not that good at it. Okay? When people are not just good at something, you are not helping them by leaving them in the same spot. What you want to do is figure out, okay, what are they good at? How do I move them into that position? And so one of the things, and churches, by the way, are terrible at this, okay? And so if we said, here is a performance scale, okay? And down here is 10, which means, you know, you are the Babe Ruth of whatever it is you do, okay? And down here is zero, 
which means you're terrible. And in fact, your organization is more effective when you're out sick than when you're there, okay? And, um, and so what happens is, is we could very quickly, you know, depending on, we could take all the people that work for us and put them on this curve. We could say, okay, there is a set of people who are down here who are nines and tens. And there is a set of people down here who are ones and twos. And then there's this big group in the middle. Okay, it is very easy to know what to do with your superstars, right? Which is how do I give them more opportunity? How do I encourage them? How do I love them? Okay, it is very easy to know what to do with the people that are terrible. I mean, you've got to find a new place for them or train them or, or whatever. But they can't be terrible and stay in the job unless they work for a church, right? And the reason that happens is because in a church, right? A church is, is an organization, but it's also a family, Okay? And in a family, you don't fire people from your family. Right? You can fire them from your organization. And so a church is a, stain, a strange collection and mix of that, which means that you need to double down a lot more on this whole issue. Because if you don't, what ends up happening is, is you can totally junk your, your employee base up with people that are just not that good. Okay, now, here's where most managers struggle, and that's with, what do I do with the people that are between fours and sevens? Okay, now, the person who's in here is just good enough that you don't want to let them go, right? Either because you like them, or because um, it would be painful to let somebody go, or, um, you know, you're just not looking forward to the search, and you don't have time to find a replacement, okay? What I will tell you is where most people get into trouble is with the people that are in the four to seven buckets. Okay? And and what I'm trying to teach our staff and what I would strongly encourage you is the wrong question is, is this person a four or a six in this role? That's not a helpful question. The right question is, is, are they a nine or a 10? Because if they are not a nine or a 10 and they are in a critical role in, in my thing, I either got to make them better or find another player, you know? And that is not just for the success of the organization, but um, God has given them unique gifts and abilities and skills, and we've got to get them into a position where they thrive. Because if they're struggling in a job, I guarantee you they're they're taking it home with them at night. And what we want to do is we want to embrace the short-term pain of making a change to get to a position where long-term, they're in a much better place. Okay? We are committed to them, but we're willing to go through the hard conversation so that they end up in a better place. Now, sometimes that's in our organizations. Sometimes it's not. But if we're going to love them well, we're going to have that conversation. Because the worst thing that could happen is they spend 10 years in a job that they're not that good at, and they know it. And so every night they go home, and it, you know, and it bleeds into their marriage and the way they parent. And does, does that make sense? So in that instance, being a truth teller really helps. But I'm telling you, organizations get bogged, it, bogged down right here. Correspondingly, if I'm interviewing someone, the wrong question is, is, are they a four or six? You know, the right question is, is are they in this bucket or not? Because if they're not in that bucket, it doesn't matter to me whether they're a four or a five or a six for that job. Now, I'm not talking about the quality of someone or someone's value of their personhood, right? Because we're all created equal in the image of God. I'm talking about, are they good at the task I'm asking them to do? Does that, does that make sense with people? 
Okay? Because if you're not willing to deal with the hard things here, what you do is you clog your middle with a bunch of people who are okay but not great. And then these people, they start leaving. Because these people down here, they want to be with other people that are great at what they do. And so if you're not diligent about dealing with the people in the middle, you know, that is a, a sure path to long-term mediocrity. So that's just an organizational thing. But right, the, I, I just say, okay, if you're in the marketplace, it is a lot easier for you than it is for me, right? Because we're dealing with the family dimension as well. But again, you know, we're, we're going to tell the truth. Okay, so now let's transition from there and let's start talking about leading organizations. So if you had my job, okay, and you walked in on a Monday morning, like let's just say, you know, I'm walking out of here today, I get hit by a truck. Wagner calls you up and says, you are the next executive pastor of Watermark, okay? It's now Monday morning. What are you going to do? Because if, if you're leading a large group of people, again, what are the one or two things that really matter? That if you lock down on, everything else takes care of itself. And correspondingly, if you neglect, you're in big trouble. And so what I would say is, is that if you are leading an organization or a large group of people, there are three circles that you've got to pay attention to. And this is where you should focus your time on Monday morning. The first one is people. The second one is just kind of vision, values, and strategy. And then the third one is just execution. So we've got, we've got this up here, right? So this is who. Right? This is what. And this is how. And how are we doing? Okay. So when I get, when I come in on a Monday morning, those are the three circles I'm paying attention to. And the most, does anybody want to venture which one of those circles I care the most about? Okay. So I'm here in vision, people, people. Okay. It's the people. Okay, because if I've got the right people in the right spots, 80% of my management headaches just went away. So that's what I care the most about. And so I'm walking in every day going, okay, do I have the people positioned on the field where I need them to be? And so when we think about this people thing, we have got, we've got to make our people great. And we've got two levers for doing that. One is hiring, or if you're a college football coach, recruiting. Okay. And one is developing. Okay, so here's another trick question. On Monday morning, which of, these, which of those two levers do I care most about? What? Developing, developing, okay. You know what? That's what I hear the most often. You know which one I care most about? Hiring. Now, think back to being a a college football coach. If I've got great players, that's that's the number one thing I've got to do. And again, I'm not talking about the quality of them as people. I'm talking about their giftedness in the skills that we need them to do. 
And so this is the one I care the most about. And uh, feeling like, okay, if we, can, if we can hire the right, the developing people will happen. But if I don't have people that are really good at what they do, I can spend all day developing them. And it's not going to help that much. Right? So if Mark Cuban called me up and asked me if I wanted to come play center for the Lakers, I mean, or the Mavericks, okay, they could train me. I mean, they could spend a long time training me. I'm not going to be a great center. I lack the natural tools and gifts and abilities to do that well. And so, you know, you got to say, look, if you're looking for a center, you, you better start off by saying, okay, they need to be taller than 6'8". You know, and they need to be able to have good technique. And, and there's a list of criteria that you would have. And if I don't have that, I can spend all day. Okay, so what I'm looking here for is I'm looking for people that have giftedness and experience in the areas where, where you know, we need help. And so this is, this is the one that I care most about. And so if you're a leader of an organization, you, you want to be very careful about delegating this. Whoever is doing your hiring, they are the ones that perhaps have the biggest influence on the long-term success of your organization. And so you want, you want to have your hand in this, and you also want to be, make darn sure that whoever is making the assessments is really good at it. And what I've typically found um, is that when people, uh, there are certain people that are very good at interviewing, and there's other people that are terrible at it. And the ones who are bad at interviewing typically want to talk about themselves, right? They make very quick decisions about whether they like someone or not. Like in the, you know, they, you hear often said that we make up our minds about people in the first seven seconds. Okay. And, and then they don't ask questions that draws out the information that they need. And so when we talk about hiring here at Watermark, what do we care about? We care about one, someone's character. Because if someone doesn't have character, you know, now I've got to reparent them, right? Like if they don't have a strong work ethic, um, at, at Watermark on our staff, the one critical skill that you have got to have is you have got to be a person that takes initiative. Because our staff is not tightly managed, okay? And so you have a lot of responsibility. So if you don't naturally take initiative, you're going to struggle here. Okay, now does that mean you're a bad person? No, okay? It just means you're going to struggle in our offense. Now you could thrive in a bunch of other offenses, but you're not going to thrive here. So I care when we're interviewing someone, okay, give me examples where, they've, where they have taken initiative in the past. And I'll just ask them, tell me stories. You know, tell me a story about how you've led something in the past. Tell me a story about how you took something that wasn't doing well and made it better, you know? But what I'm trying to do is trying to figure out, as you drop down to the bottom, I want to know behaviorally, how are they going to behave? Not do I like them, not like them, but do they, you know, do they have the behaviors we need to be successful? And then I'll ask them case studies. Okay, here's a problem. You're the boss. What are you going to do? And what you find is, is that will elicit better information that you can then use to make a decision. And so, uh, you know, this last, so it's character, right? Do, do they have the, the 
the character question. Competency, do they have the giftedness to do the, the job? And then chemistry, you know, do we like them? And are they going to be good fits on the team? Because we've, we are building a culture and we've got to make sure that whoever we bring into the team is going to add value to that culture. Okay, so at Watermark, um, we, uh, I don't know how you describe our culture, but one of the things we love to do is have fun together. And so, um, it, uh, you know, this Tuesday, once, uh, once a quarter, we, we take a day or a half day to go build our culture. And so this Tuesday, um, our whole staff is going over to Fort Worth. You know, we just opened a Fort Worth satellite. So we're all going over to Fort Worth to see it. We're going to spend some time in prayer over there. We're going to have lunch together, building relationships. And then you know what we're going to do? We're going to go play paintball. Okay? Um, and, you know, you, I don't know what you think about playing paintball, but it is a great team-building activity, right? There is nothing like feeling you're going to get shot with a paintball to bring out the adrenaline in you, okay? <laughs> and in those high-stress environments, that's when you, feel, you forge bonds with people, okay? So um, in, in, in our staff, there's going to be people um, on Tuesday that, I mean, they're lying awake at night thinking about it, Okay? I mean, they're, they're wearing their camos to bed Monday night because we're playing paintball on Tuesday, okay? And then there's going to be a whole group of people that can't sleep because they're afraid of playing paintball, right? They don't think, think of themselves as athletic. They think it's going to get hurt with a paintball, right? Um, I do not care which of those two camps people are in. What I, what I really care about is just, I want to work with the people that says, hey, that night might not be my favorite thing, but I'm in and I'm going to be all in. Because right? all of us are in situations where there are things that we either don't want to do or we don't like doing or you know, we're afraid of or whatever. And we want to have people that have a can-do spirit on, on our team. Now, we're not playing paintball because we want to shoot people. We're playing paintball because we feel like that is going to build bonds, relational bonds that's going to connect our hearts more as a team. Okay? Recognize, so th- does that make sense in terms of talking about chemistry? How we are looking for people that are going to, they're going to, hey, if if I'm in, I'm all in. That's the kind of person we're looking to add to our staff. The last thing I would say about this is when you're hiring, you always should look to hire from within. You know, there was a a study, um, I don't know, maybe a dozen years ago, that looked at the success rates of CEOs and COOs and CFOs, you know, which are the top three positions in big companies. Um, and was, were people that were hired from outside more successful or less successful than when the hires were made internally? And what they discovered was there was a dramatic difference that the people f- that were hired from within often did much better in the roles and lasted much longer than the people that were hired from the outside. And the reason why is the people that were hired from within, you know, the people that were hiring them knew they knew their character. They knew what they were good at and not good at. They were great culture fits in the organization. And so they had a lot going for them, you know, even when they stepped into that role. So at Watermark, when we're looking to hire someone, we're always like, hey, who is, who is here at Watermark, either on our staff or in our body, who's already doing that and doing it well that we trust? Because that's, that's who we're going to look to first just because the odds that they're going to be more successful are going to be higher. 
And then if we can't find them, we, we may look externally, but I'll bet you a full 90% of the VAR staff were hired from within, meaning they were already at Watermark when we made the hire. And the ones that weren't, someone knew them from somewhere else. And so, you know, we now have three lawyers on our staff, right? None of whom are working as lawyers anymore, but all three of whom are very good at what they did. And a job opened up and, you know, they were great candidates. We knew their character. Boom, they're hired. So does that, so hire from within if you can. Now, the downside of hiring from within is that you can get inbred in terms of new ideas. And so if you're going to hire from within, you have to be very cognizant of reaching outside your organization to get new and different ideas and pulling them in. Again, there's no perfect model. You just got to understand, you know, what are the problems I'm choosing to live with? So at Watermark, the problem we choose to live with is we have to be extra diligent about reaching out to other churches and other organizations and getting new ideas that we then maybe can adapt here. So that's, so that's hiring. And some of you, you know, some of you may be in a position to, but all I would tell you is, is you only have to make a bad hire one time to realize how painful that is and how much emotional energy that costs you. And that, that causes you then to want to spend a lot more time on the front end. Okay. Now, so we've hired someone. Okay. The second thing we got to do is we now have to develop them. And so here is where we, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about, which is what are they good at? How do we get them into those positions? You know, how do we get them experience? Another thing that I would say is, is, you know, where, no matter this goes back to, are you a hands-on micromanager or are you a delegator abdicator? We have to adapt our leadership style to the person that's in the role. And so uh, here, you know, again, what I would say is, is this is a framework that is helpful for teaching people how to lead. And that is there are four phases of leadership. Okay. Phase one is I'm going to do it and you're going to watch me. Okay. Phase two is I'm going to do it and you're going to help me. Phase three is you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. And phase four is, is you're going to do it and I'm going to watch. Okay, so when we've got someone who is underneath us working on our staff, we need to assess how experienced are they, not just in the overall job, but at a specific task. And so, you know, like a, some, sometimes some of the better examples are, we've, let's take some of our lawyers that have come on the Watermark staff, okay? How many of those guys do you think have done wedding ceremonies, okay? None, Okay. How many have done funerals? None. Okay. There's nothing like having to do someone's funeral to throw stress into your life. Okay. Now, if I am a bad developer of people, I'm going to say to someone who's brand new on our staff, Hey, I know you've never done a funeral, but guess what? There's a funeral Monday. You're it. Go. Okay. That does not help people. What I want to do is say, hey, there is a funeral on Monday. This is a core skill you're going to want to have because as you love people, when significant events happen in their life, they're going to want you to help them. And so I want you to come to that that funeral and I'm going to do it and you're going to watch me. But you better pay really close attention because guess what? The next time we do it, you're going to help. Okay? Now, Now you've just made people like the equivalent of very thirsty for water. Right? Because they know... This is coming their way. And what I'm trying to do is, is I want to model it for them. 
Then I want to slowly hand it off to them. Okay? Then I want them to do it, but I'm still coaching them. Now you go do it. And that's just called the four phases of leadership. There's a, a great book. It's by Ken Blanchard. It's called Leadership and the One-Minute Manager, where he talks all about that. He calls it situational leadership. But it's understanding that as leaders, it is not a one-size-fits-all. We have to lead people differently based on their experience and their giftedness and their temperament. Okay, so that is this developing piece. 